Today's text, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at 17 through 34, but where we're going to begin is in the middle with verse 23. Um, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, love for you to take that Bible right in front of you under the seat. It's on page 136. Uh, I was reminded again this week, I'm often reminded of of how significant it is uh, to, to open up God's Word and to really... Man, it's something about filling pages and, and stuff like that. I got some new books this week, and um, I did this. I, I smelled it. Do you ever do that with a book? You ever smell it and be like, oh, yeah. And some of you be like, ugh, that's kind of, but, it, but it's, I don't know. I like the smell of books. There's something about having a book. Um, but if you like your device and stuff like that, that's cool. I'm not anti, but um, if you don't have something in front of you, there's a Bible there, page 136. Be helpful, because we're going to. We're going to knock these verses out, look at them, and there's some words I want you to hang on and look at this morning, and so let's look at the Bible together. It'd be great. It'd be good for you. All right, here we go. First thing I want you to see this morning is that the church is not perfect. We are not perfect people. I know that's like breaking news to us, but we are not perfect people. We, we fall short. We fall short in how we treat each other. We fall short in, in how we maybe treat our gatherings together, and we're going to see today that the church in Corinth, they did that. They did that. They struggled with that. And so Paul addresses them. What he's really going to do, he's going to call them out. Um, and pretty, I mean, we've read it already. You see how he's called them out to the carpet. Um, but as he does, he's going to do something. He's going to remind them who they are as a people, okay, it's going to be good for us too, and what that means for their gatherings together and also for them as a community, how they're to treat one another as those who treasure Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we're going to be encouraged today as those who are God's new creation um, to treat the gathering here on Sundays uh, when we come together for life group. Um, how do we treat those times? And how do we treat one another? What's the significance of it all? Now, to do that this morning, what I want to do is I want to draw our attention really to one phrase as we begin today. And this one phrase is really going to be our lens for the whole text today, for the whole sermon, that we would look through this lens. Okay? So to do that, if you would, look at 23, uh, chapter 11, verse 23. Listen to what Paul says. I've received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was portrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. I want you to stop there for a second. This cup is the new covenant. Um, maybe underline, maybe circle, or maybe just take note of this uh, phrase, the new covenant. There's great significance in what Jesus says in just those three words, the new covenant. And we're going to look at that in a second. So listen to what Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay? Um, the new covenant. What is Jesus talking about? What, what is that, right? It may be a new term for us, a new, new idea for us this morning. And so Paul is drawing our attention to the Lord's Supper 
and what it celebrates. And it celebrates how Jesus established um, the new covenant. The new covenant was prophesied. It was spoken of long ago by Jeremiah, right, and also the prophet Ezekiel. And I want to turn to those two places. They're going to be up on the screen. We're not going to read the entirety of where this is found, but I want to take really the heart of what the new covenant is. And so listen to Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Christ. He's going to prophesy. Um, The Lord's going to speak through him about this new covenant. So when you think of covenants, you know, maybe if you've you've been in church, you've heard different covenant language. You've heard about the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. You've heard about the Mosaic covenant that God made to Moses. For some of us, that, that may be new to us, and that's okay, right? And so that's some of the language of the Old Testament, and these covenants are significant. They're important, all right? And I'm going to show you how the new covenant is important and how it's important to us today. And so listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 31, 31 through 34. The Lord says, behold, days are coming. So they're coming. They're in the future, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like a covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So what covenant is he talking about there where he took them by their hand, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, right? He's talking about the Mosaic covenant. And he says here, which they broke. And God says, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this this covenant that's coming, right? It is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law, God says, within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, think about the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, God um, had Moses put the law on what? Tablets, okay? And they were laws to where God would bless them, and then what? They, they would have to live this way. They would have to live according to these laws. And so the covenant was based on law-keeping, okay? That's the Mosaic covenant, and they broke it. Because what does the Mosaic do, the Mosaic covenant? Paul even says this, that, that the law is good. It is good, but here's what the Mosaic covenant shows us, is that you and I fall short of God's standards. That's what the Mosaic law does, and, and that's for our good because ultimately, it shows us our need for God. It shows us our need for Jesus, okay? And, and that we cannot help or cure or resolve our sin problem on our own, okay? So the Mosaic Covenant was, was good, but, but here's what, what God is saying here. There's a new covenant coming, and I will put my law within them, and their heart I will write uh, I, I will write it, the law. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then listen to this, verse 34 at the end. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the wow statement, right? Wow. And then listen to what Ezekiel says, two verses, verse 36, or chapter 36, 23 through 26 through 27. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. Okay? So this is the language of the new covenant. This is the new covenant. And so it is God's pledge. It's his promise 
to his people, to forgive the sins of his people, to put his laws within us, to write them on our hearts and be our God and to make us his people. And so what's, what's the, the simple street language of this? What, what's the simplicity of this? Here's how I would put it. It's all about a relationship. And what God is saying is, I want to have a relationship with you. And here's what it's based on. Not what you do, but God says, what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to forgive your sin and iniquity and count them against you no longer. It's grace, right? It's about a relationship. So when you think about new covenant, think relationship. Based not on what you do, okay, but what God does on our behalf, what God does for us. We can be his people, and he will be our God forever. The certainty of this lies not on them who he makes this promise to, but in God's covenant commitment based on his promise. And so he says he will forgive their sins. He will remember their iniquity no more. And he says he will write his law, this time not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of their heart. And so two things happen here with the idea of the new covenant, okay? Two things. Uh, Two problems that, that separate us from God are solved in this. Two things. And so the first thing is this. The first problem of our guilt, okay? Our guilt. All of us are guilty before God because of sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all right? No one is exempt from that. And so therefore, we have guilt. We all stand guilty before God. And so Jesus, as Paul says here, as he brings it up, as he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he solves the problem. He solves the problem, and that's the heart of the new covenant. He solves the problem by the shedding of what? Blood. To remove our guilt by taking it on himself. So Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity. And how is God going to do that? Well, it's answered here in this text today in verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. And so how is Jesus, right, going to make this happen, this new covenant? How is God going to make it happen? Through the blood of Christ. So the new covenant is established, right? It's confirmed in the blood of Christ, his death on the cross. And so that solves the problem of our guilt. The second thing it solves is the problem of our rebellion, okay? Our struggle with running away from God and following the destructive suggestions of the world, it helps us that we do not rebel against God. And so God solves this by putting his law within us and on our hearts. So his will, his desires will flow from the inside out of us that we might live a life pleasing and honoring to him instead of our selfish desires. So it solves our guilt and it solves the problem of our rebellion. And so here's what the new covenant does for us, right? It forgives us of our sins. It counts against our, our iniquities, our sins against God, it counts us uh, against us no longer, right? Because of the blood of Christ. And here's what's created based on the new covenant, is a new covenant people, okay? A new covenant people. 
And so the new covenant is not just a mere possibility. It's a new creation established through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. It is not something that God just proposes, right, through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but truly something he accomplishes. And it's the creation of a people for God, a people who seek not to forsake him. The new covenant creates a people. They will be his people, and he will be their God forever. Now, I want you to to look at these two verses. In Hebrews chapter 13, toward the end of, of this book in Hebrews, in verse 20 and 21, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, that's Jesus, okay, through the blood of the eternal covenant, and so there's that covenant language. What's the eternal covenant? It's the new covenant that the writer has in mind here, okay? Even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you might be saying, hey, how, how can I be the new covenant people? How is that even possible, right? How could I... How can I do that? Well, here's what the writer of Hebrews says is God's going to equip you. So, so he just doesn't create you to be his people and just leave you on his own. He's going to equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, okay? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ. And so he creates a people, and here's what the new covenant does as well. It controls a people, Maybe a different word. It helps a people. It equips a people. It sustains a people. This is all that the new covenant does for us, causing us to live a life that is pleasing in his sight. And so it works in us, all right? So the new covenant is what truly gives us hope. It is established through the blood of Christ. It creates a new covenant people. It controls us. It helps us to be a people to live for his glory, causing us to love God, to love people, and to celebrate in our gatherings rightly. But the Corinthians, as a new covenant people, they struggle, right? Just like we all do, they, they struggle. They struggled to live like new covenant people, They struggled with that. And it's seen in in their community with one another. It's seen in their gatherings as well. And I want to show you how here. Go back up to verse 17, okay? Remember, Corinthians, uh, Corinth is is a messy church, right? Uh, There's no perfect church. Every church has has messes and and things that that need to be put in order and arranged and and addressed. and, And all churches have that, right? As one preacher I heard a few, few years ago said about the church at Corinth, it, it, it literally is the church gone wild, okay? And as we've gone through this, this letter, we've kind of seen that, all right? Um, and so I love how Paul addresses them here. He, 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 he's calling them out here. He's not holding back any punches, and he's going to do two things. And so as we look through the lens of the new covenant that we just talked about, I want us to see the idea of community and gatherings, yeah, so we see this horizontal relationship, and so we see this vertical relationship as well as we talk about our gatherings. But look at the community and listen to what he says. There's a great word here. He says in verse 17 and 18, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, okay? So this isn't like high five, pat on the back type stuff. Instead, he says, I don't do this because you come together not for the better, but for the worse, 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, Paul says, I believe it. Um, Paul basically is saying here is, is, I'd rather that you would not come together as a people. I'd rather you just not come together. <laughs> Stop. It reminds me of the language, if, you, if you've ever read Isaiah chapter 1. I don't know if you've ever read that. It might be a good read to go read, and, and you can kind of see where, where God is, is speaking to the people of Israel. And he says on one occasion in that chapter, he says to the people, he says, your worship is weary to me. <laughs> you don't really want God to tell you that. <laughs> you don't want God to say, hey, dude, your singing's wearing me out. Not, not because of the way you sound and because you're off pitch. That's not what it means. But it's because you're, you're singing these things, but your life doesn't match what you're singing. And so that was kind of the issue with the Corinthians is, is you're showing up and you're going and you're going through the motion and it's like this religious thing you're doing, but you are totally off base on something. And it's not just something, it's, it's really a couple things here he's going to address. So Paul gives this instruction. So I want you to kind of have a picture here. They, they would gather in the first century as churches in homes. And so new covenant communities built and based on Jesus Christ, on his death and resurrection, they, they would gather in homes. And so this was common. And so Paul, in fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, as he's writing from Corinth to Rome, to the church in Rome, he's writing to a house church, okay? And a guy named Gaius is who he's writing to. And so as we think about that, that's what is happening in Corinth, is you have these really, not just one house church, you have probably multiple house churches, kind of like life groups. And Paul's writing to them, not one in particular, but probably all of them are experiencing divisions, factions. And so Paul says they'd be better off if they didn't even go and gather together at all because of the way they were behaving. And what was their behavior? That They were not treating everyone fairly. They were giving preferential treatment to persons of status. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about this idea of patronage, okay? And, and that was, was leaking into the church. It was in the society full on, but it also was coming into the church. And so this was a serious problem. But listen to what Paul says. Paul says, wait a second, though. This has purpose. There's purpose to this. Look at verse 19. He says, For there must also be factions or divisions among you. Why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. And Paul says, These aren't good, but I, but I want you to know there's a double sided coin here. Okay? Paul says, The divisions of your social gatherings have a positive side, they clarify something. Okay? They clarify whom God approves as faithful and trustworthy, and those he does not. That also speaks. I mean, that, that, that could be kind of a kick in the gut, too. Like, oh, oh, okay. The divisions show us something. Who's faithful, who's not. And then Paul says in verse 20 through 22, he says, here's the issue. Here's what you're doing, okay? Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? I mean, that's a what? <laughs> I love that. Do you have houses in which you can eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And then he says, in this, I will not praise you. Wow. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. And he means it to be so. Okay? The rich were bringing their food to this feast. And so when they would gather, they would eat. And it, and it was referred to as the love feast. Okay? Perfect for Valentine's Week. All right? It's a love feast. And so they would eat this meal. And part of that meal was the Lord's Supper. Okay, which, which Jesus had instituted and ordained for us as the body of Christ, right? To gather around together. We'll talk why in just a few moments, but we're to do that. And so the Lord's Supper, it seemed it was kind of at the end of this feast. When they would eat together, they would also observe the Lord's Supper. And so in the early church, we would see that the Lord's Supper was central to their gatherings. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 46, it seems that uh, weekly, if not daily, the church would gather together in the community as this new covenant community around Jesus Christ, and they would eat together. Um, they would read the word together. They were devoted to these things. They would pray together. Um, they had things in common. So what that meant is they would share with each other. In fact, in some cases, they would like have um, maybe like a community garage sale. That's why we would call it today. And they would take the profit from those things that they would sell, and, and they would share with one another as, as others would have need, and so that, that everyone was common in the fact that all their needs were met. And so the church would love each other, care for each other. And so we have this beautiful picture in Acts 2, 42 through 47, of what that looks like. And Paul's saying here, y'all don't look like that, right? We got a problem. Y'all do not look like that. And when you come together to serve, or serve and to remember and celebrate the Lord's Supper, something is off. And the problem is social discrimination. It's in the atmosphere. It's how you treat one another. During the meal, they were eating. They were getting drunk with no care for the poor, for people who didn't have any food to eat. And so the result was the rich got plenty and the poor had little and the poor suffered embarrassment as well. So here, here's kind of what it looks like. I'll just kind of paint a picture. So say we have a life group together, all right? And say in your group, and you got, you got people that maybe a little more affluent, have, have, have a little more money or whatever, right? And then you maybe have some people that, that don't, okay? And in some groups, you bring food, Right? Maybe a potluck, or somebody's got this, or somebody's got that. And say this, this one family, they bring rolls, which I'm thinking rolls are great, right? But what happens is, is kind of you have this separation going on, because maybe this family just doesn't have as much. Maybe they have six kids, maybe they have four kids, or whatever. Maybe they have one kid. One kid costs a lot, right? And, but they just, they can't afford more than that. And for some reason, the group kind of gives this family kind of the stiff arm, right? And maybe not physically, right? <laughs> That'd be weird. But not physically, but attitude. And that's what's, that's what's being addressed here. The heart of this is attitude. And the people, though, in the rest of the group just don't even act like they're aware 
But what ends up happening, this group over here, and this is very extreme, so just go with me here. I seem to do this lately. But this group, man, they're eating their steak and potato, and they got their little asparagus wrapped in bacon, and they got, they're going at it. And this family's got the rolls that they brought over here, and nobody's even aware, even aware. And they're just put off by themselves. And the group goes on, and you just go through the motions and stuff like that. And in this case, it looked like they're bringing some wine, and, 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 and it, looks, it seems like bottles were brought or whatever. And, and it just continues to where even there's people getting intoxicated at this gathering, a church gathering, right? So when I say church gone wild, here we go, right? And that's happening, but, but here's the issue. It's an attitude. Because you might be saying, well, okay, how does this translate to our deal? I think there's a lot of ways it translates, a lot of ways, practically. But the biggest way is attitude. The problem here was the attitude of selfishness. And, and I think one way that translates today is a lack of awareness of others. It is we become so fixed on our little world or ourselves, we, we aren't even aware of what's even going on here. And, 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 and we don't even know we're not aware of it, right? And so what's happening is there becomes these social divides. We've got our group, right? And we're not even aware. And that was happening here. And so they were being unloving. And what they were doing was cutting at the heart of the gospel. And it was cutting at the heart of the church. It was cutting at the heart of the new covenant. Because the new covenant was to control them as a people, was to help them as a people, was to equip them as a people, to love others. Remember, they're to live a life pleasing to God's sight. And they were struggling with that. Because of a selfish attitude, because of treating others in a prejudiced manner for one reason or another. There was a divide socially, based on class, and you name it. There was distinctions, and it was a problem that Paul calls out. You see, we are to love all. We're to share with all, especially in the community of church. We're to care for one another, just like in Acts 2, but also Philippians 2, 3, I think is the heart of the matter. Paul said this, that we are to have the attitude of Jesus Christ. What is that? Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Man, that should be our anthem. That's what we should live by. And Paul says this was lacking. So the community, the new covenant community, is to live that way. What about their gatherings? We are to treasure and celebrate Jesus Christ, to worship him in our gatherings. That's why we come. That's why we come. That's why you come, right? And there's something happening here when we gather. And let me show you what. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. Listen to what Paul says. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what's a phrase that he repeats twice? In remembrance of me. So as we come, as we gather around the Lord's table every week, as we worship, 
and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, what are we doing? First of all, we're remembering, okay? We're remembering. It draws our attention, the Lord's Supper does, to the Savior's great love for you and I. And it shows us something. Look at verse 24. It says, this is my body, which is, I love this phrase, for you. For you. Okay? It's a gift. You know the new covenant is a gift? It's a gift. It's a gift of, of having a relationship with God. You get God. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? And so what's a gift? What's for you? He says here, Jesus' body. Right? How is that? Right? And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we take the bread that represents the body of Christ. This invitation to eat of the bread was an invite for them to participate in the meaning and the benefits of his death. And so Jesus' body for them um, is the idea that it secured atonement. It secured a covering for us. And so think of scriptures like this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for what? For our sins. That's what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when we were separated, when we were far from God, he died for us. Verse 8 of that same chapter, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it was a body, the body of Jesus Christ that atones for us. Why? Because it was offered up to take our place. It's a substitute. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus is communicating through the Lord's Supper about his body. He lays it down. He offers it up on the cross for us. We also remember the new covenant in Jesus' blood, which we've already talked about already. As we take the cup and we drink, we remember Jesus' shed blood on the cross on our behalf. And that's what ratified, that's what validated, that's what confirmed and established the new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were prophesying about as God spoke through them. So we remember the salvation accomplished by Jesus, his death and his resurrection as we come together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not only that, we reflect. We reflect and examine, and this is significant. Because the Corinthians, if you think about it, they weren't thoughtful. That was their problem. That They weren't very thoughtful about their gatherings. They weren't thoughtful about others. Okay? They just did what they wanted to, right? But Paul says, be thoughtful about what you're doing. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are, were weak and sick and a number asleep. That means dead, okay? But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. And so what does this mean? It means when we come together, when we come around the Lord's table, we're to reflect on our lives. We're to examine when taking the Lord's Supper 
our own lives. So that means we're to be thoughtful, not flippant. And so judgment happens at the table, according to what Paul says. What kind of judgment? First of all, we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves. We examine our own lives and say, am I living in a way that's pleasing to the sight of God? How am I treating others? Am I being kind to others with my words? Am I caring for others? We look at our own life and we think about, have I lied this week? Have I misrepresented God this week? We think through those things. We examine our own life. We think through those things. Am I sharing or am I being selfish? And and when God reminds us of things, things on our heart, things that are sinful, and and things that we shouldn't have done, we, we, we say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry. We confess those. And what's amazing, as 1 John 1, 9 says, is that when we confess to Jesus, guess what? He, he's faithful, and he's just, and he's good, and he's righteous to forgive us of our sin. Praise the Lord. But we, we, we reflect and we examine. That's how we treat the time. It's an important time. Even in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus says, hey, if you go to the altar to give a gift in, in worship and you're worshiping Jesus, but you remember, wait, I have a problem with someone. There's conflict with someone, and I'm the reason. you got to go and make things right, right? Jesus says that's how serious this is. man. That's how serious Paul and Jesus is about treating one another rightly and living in such a way that pleases God. So we're to judge ourselves, and then also God will judge us. And that's what Paul kind of has in mind right here, because the the Corinthians failed in judging and examining themselves. They were really good at at examining and judging others, right? But they failed in doing that for their own life. And so they weren't properly judging themselves. They continued in selfishness. They continued in thoughtless participation in the Lord's Supper. And so Paul calls them out here and says, listen, listen. Some of you guys are sick. Some of you guys are weak. And some have even died because they have acted this way. It's discipline. And we see it throughout Scripture. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right? 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, we see uh, John even speaking of this, right? And it doesn't mean everyone who's sick is, is struggling with this. That, that's not the point, Okay? The point is, God takes this serious. So church, be thoughtful, right? Be thoughtful about your gathering. So what does that mean? Remember, reflect, examine, and then lastly, look, go back up to verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you're doing something else. You proclaim. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so participation in the Lord's Supper does something. It dramatizes the gospel in audio, in visual. And so the Lord's Supper not only remembers his first coming, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood, but it also proclaims his death, and it looks forward to him coming again. And we're to do that until he returns. So we're proclaiming, we're declaring the great truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return, and we're hopeful as we celebrate and proclaim. So we remember, we reflect and examine and we proclaim. And so Paul at the end says, hey, what's our response? Guys, what do we do? What do we do with all this? And he says in 33 and 34, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. See the twist there? See the chain? Wait. 
Stop. Be thoughtful. Think of others. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. <laughs> Basically, I love what he's doing here. Hey, take care of your stomach at home, all right? Eat at home <laughs> so that you will not come together for judgment. Be thoughtful about others. Be thoughtful about your gathering is what he's telling the church at Corinth. And then he says, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. I love Paul here. Paul here is basically like, there's a lot more. <laughs> there's a lot more to get in order, guys. But right now, he's saying, let's deal with this. So God's made a pledge to us, a promise to us in the new covenant. He's promised to be our God and that we would be his people. He's promised to forgive our sins and count our sins against us no longer. And he's promised to do that forever. How? Through Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus has established the new covenant. And what that simply means in street terms is that you and I can have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if we would believe in Jesus as Lord, that if we would believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so the new covenant provides for us a salvation through the body and the blood of Christ if we would simply forgive. And what hope, what, what, what great assurance to know that our sins are forgiven and it's not count against us anymore forever. Wow. Because why? Jesus took our place. He paid the price that we deserve. And so he creates a new people, the church, the new covenant community. And not only that, but he controls them, he helps them, he sustains them, he equips them to be his people in the world, that we would love each other rightly, that we would care for each other rightly, that in our gatherings we would be thoughtful. And remember, it's about treasuring Jesus and worshiping him as we remember, as we reflect and examine so that our lives would be pleasing in his sight. And lastly, that we proclaim Christ, his death and resurrection, and that he is coming again. That's our hope as the New Covenant community. And so today, celebrate. Celebrate, church. The New Covenant, if you believe in Christ, is for you. Jesus bought it for you. He made it possible for you. And so every time together, when we gather, we remember that. We love God rightly. We love others rightly. Let's pray.